Hey guys, if we haven't met yet, my name's Hans. It is great to see you guys all here. And uh, I'm going to pray as we uh, look at God's Word this morning. Let's pray. Father God, I I pray as we look at your Word this morning that you would speak to us. Speak to us wherever we're at. And Lord, help us to see how the grace of Jesus and his love not only points out the things that he doesn't like, but gives us his forgiveness and gives us also the power to change. And so, Lord, may we not set aside what Jesus may say to us, no matter how challenging it is today. May we not uh, run away from that, but may we run to his cross where forgiveness is found. May we be filled with his spirit so that we are able to change for his glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of months ago, I was reading a, a study or the results of a study about the biggest fears that adults have got. The biggest fears that adults have got. And what was really interesting, when I I was starting to read the article, I thought they'd talk about heights, which is one of my biggest fears, which is ironic because I'm tall, right? Or, you know, they would say it's, um, you know, bugs or spiders or anything. No, the number one fear that, that college or university educated adults have is the fear of being found to be an imposter. That is, walking into a room and not belonging. And the article goes on because the person interviewed a lot of people who have this fear. And they talked to an academic who's been an academic for 20 years and she feels like she's always an imposter. She feels like there's always people smarter than her. She feels like every academic conference that that she speaks at, even though she's written many books and many articles, she just feels like someone's going to ask her a question and she's not going to know the answer and everyone's going to know that she's she's the dumbest person in the room. Uh, you know, they talk to a model who, who feels like no matter what shoot he, go, he goes on, someone's going to say, well, there's someone better looking or you're not really good looking at all and feels like an imposter. I don't know if you've ever felt like that. I'm not sure if you've ever gotten maybe a promotion and you're now in management and you're going, I'm not sure what to do. And you're scared that someone's going to actually point out that you don't know what you're doing and you'll be found out. Maybe it's a different thing for you. But I'm sure at some point in our lives, we felt like an imposter. I, I remember going to more college as a 20-year-old. I was 20. I, a, a few years ago, I only got 49.5 in the HSC. And I was sitting with about 100 people who were very, very, very smart. In fact, some people in that room had PhDs. Some people had, um, had uh, you know, multiple degrees. Some people had done MTS. A couple of people actually learned the whole Hebrew and Greek syllabus in the summer before they got to college. And when I found out that, I was like, I'm an imposter. And there was a crushing sense of of that feeling. I bring up this this idea of imposter syndrome because I wonder if if you have seen other people that are actually imposters, that they, they think they belong, but they really don't. They think they've got the skills to be in this, in this position, but they don't. They think they've got the character to be this, but they don't. They're actually imposters. 
and yet they cannot see it, but everyone else can. I wonder if you've seen people like that. I know I have. I bring that up because Jesus is actually going to, to confront people who are really imposters. Here are very, very, very religious people. And yet Jesus is going to say, you actually don't belong. You're not in the kingdom of God, even though you think you are. You think you've got it all together, but actually you don't. They are very, very religious. And yet their religion is actually taking them away from God and the kingdom of God. And here's my fear. Here's my fear. My fear is that we would have people in this room who actually think they're part of the family of Jesus, think they're, they're a Christian, and yet aren't. The, the, their sin has so deceived them, just like the Pharisees were deceived by their own sin. And so here's what I don't want to happen. I don't want us to just go, oh, well, well, I'm glad, Hans, you're preaching this because I actually know some imposters in this room, right? That's not what we should be doing. What we should be doing is really listening to the words of Jesus and asking the question, am I actually on his side? Do I actually really follow him? Has my heart been changed? Or, or, or do I just play the part very, very well? Do I just look like a good Christian and act like a good Christian, but really my heart is not changed? Because in the end, the Pharisees look like good religious people, but their hearts weren't changed. And my fear is that there's people in this room that are exactly the same. And so let's not today brush off what Jesus is saying, but let's ask the question, is it true for me? Let's not ask the question, is it true for somebody else? That's their perspective, and they've got to think through that for themselves. But let's ask it for ourselves. As we look at this passage, we're going to see three things. We're going to see the faith that Jesus rejects, the life that Jesus rejects, and then the faith that Jesus accepts. The faith that Jesus rejects, the life that Jesus rejects, and finally, the faith that Jesus accepts. Let's have a look at the first point, uh, the faith that Jesus rejects. And I want to see, I want you to see something in verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus. Now, when I read that, I went, man, that's so interesting. And you guys are going, oh, it's not interesting at all. But I'll show you why. If you read chapter 6, Mark chapter 6, where is Jesus? Jesus is hanging out right up the north around the Sea of Galilee, right up the north of Israel. And they've come from Jerusalem The Pharisees have come from Jerusalem to scope Jesus out. That's like you and I thinking, I should check out someone, uh, but they live south of Wollongong. Now, 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 for us, jumping in a car, that's pretty easy, but they would have to walk. And so you get this vibe that they have walked for days just to check out Jesus, just to see he's legit. And they are doing that with mixed motives. As we see, that they're trying to, to see what him and his disciples are doing wrong. Have a look at verse 2. And some saw his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they, ha- when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, of pitchers, and kettles. 
Now, this is even before COVID, right? And, and, you know, like, we wash our hands all the time because we don't want to get sick. But do you notice why they wash their hands? It's, it's actually not to do with cleanliness at all on one level. It's not to do so that they wouldn't get the flu or something. This is ceremonial. And on one level, it's actually not a bad thing. See, see what, what they think is that God is holy, right? God's a holy God who is perfect in every single way. And us as humans, when we're not. We're defiled in so many ways. And, and so what the Jews did is they thought, well, how do I remind myself all the time of God's holiness and my defilement? Well, what we're going to do is we're going to wash everything which shows that we actually need to be washed. We need to be clean. And so you think, man, that's actually not a bad reminder. Every time I wash my hands, I'm reminding myself of the holiness of God and my own sin, and I need forgiveness. Well, well, great, but do you see what happens? It goes beyond that. Now you have to wash your hands, and if you don't, well, actually you're not a good follower of God. That's the whole point here. So they've taken a tradition which on one level is actually not a bad thing, and they made it an ultimate thing so that if you don't do it, you are not a legit follower of God. And so they confront Jesus, verse 5. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating food, sorry, eating their food with defiled hands? Well, why don't they wash their hands before eating? You know, it's a tradition. And Jesus has very stinging words. Have a look at verse 6. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written. The word for hypocrite is literally a play actor. Back in Greco-Roman times, actors would have on masks. And Jesus is saying, you've got this mask on. You've got this mask of this good religious person, but actually, that's all it is. It's just a mask. And that's why he quotes from Isaiah, uh, verse 6. These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus is saying, is you've got all this religious stuff on the outside, but guess what? Your heart is far from God. You put on this facade and yet your heart is dead towards God. I'm not sure if you've ever seen the movie Dave. The, the, it's a great movie from about 1993, I think. It's got uh, Kevin Klein and Sigourney Weaver. And I won't take you through the whole movie. You can go and watch it on Netflix if it's on there yourself. But there's a scene where um, Kevin Klein plays two characters on it, but one of them, he plays the president, the actual president, and Sigourney Weaver is his wife. And it shows this scene where they are outside the White House and to the cameras, they're all lovey-dovey. They look like the perfect in love uh, you know, couple. And then, then they go inside and the camera follows them. And as soon as the doors are shut, they go, to, uh, they go their own separate ways. The smiles drop. Everything is different. And you see that this marriage is only skin deep. There's no heart there. There's no nothing there. It's, it's gone. 
And here is Jesus. He is saying the same thing to the Pharisees. He's going, this religious thing, this God thing for you, is just merely just this thing on the outside. There's no heart to it. Your heart hasn't been changed. Your heart hasn't actually been changed. And then he goes, let's take an example. Have a look at verse 9. And he continues, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if anyone declares what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is devoted to God, then no longer, sorry, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and you do many things like that. He, he uses this very, very kind of foreign to us tradition of Corbin. The idea is that what I could do is I could say, if I've got some money or a possession, I could say, well, actually that's devoted to God. And therefore, I did not necessarily have to use it for the benefit of others. I could go, oh, oh no, sorry, I can't lend you my land because it's Corbin, it's devoted to God. I, I, I can't lend you this or I can't give you this money because it's devoted to God. But then you just use it for yourself anyway because it's not really devoted to God. And, and, and Jesus is saying, you do that with your parents, man. But back in this day, kids, when they grew up, were meant to take care of their elderly parents, Right? And he's saying, what you do is you've got this money that you could help your parents with, but you call it Corbin so you can just spend it on yourself. And you teach this as a good thing. And so you actually have this tradition over here that you teach and that you abide by, and therefore you can just push the word of God to one side. Can you see what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying human traditions if not seen in the right light, can be extremely deadly to your faith. Because what we can do is go, here's my human tradition, here's my heritage or whatever, therefore I don't have to do this because I'm this. I'll give you an example from my life where our traditions, our backgrounds, even our ethnic backgrounds can actually take us away from obeying God's word. I remember when I was, um, when I was at Moore College and I had a great boss. His name was Peter Rogers and he used to say really insightful things to me about me and my character, my, uh, all this kind of stuff. And, uh, and one time he came up to me and he said, Hands, mate, you don't really encourage people. And I said, yeah, okay, I don't. He goes, yeah, but, but what you've got to realize, Hans, is, is all the way through the New Testament, one of the biggest marks of a Christian is that they encourage people. And I thought about it, and I was like, okay. And then I said to Peter, actually, I don't, I don't have the gift of encouragement. I've got the gift of actually seeing all the problems in a church and pointing them out, which is stupid and arrogant, right? And he said, Hans, you know what? I actually don't see the gift of seeing all the problems in a church and pointing them out as a gift in the New Testament. And then I said, oh, but Peter, what you've got to realize is that my dad was Danish. And in the Danish tradition, what you don't do is you don't really give positive affirmation, right? 
If my dad loved my mum's cooking, he would go, yeah, it's good. That was it. And that's my dad jumping up and down and, and, you know, writing a sign in the sky going, this is amazing, right? So, you know, I just don't... And not only that, I'm half Danish, I'm half Aussie, and in Aussie, you know, in the Aussie culture, what we do is we, we rip people off who we love. We don't really encourage. And Peter said to me, he said, Hans, who do you want to be? Do you want to be half Danish and half Australian? Or do you want to be a Christian? It's your choice. And then I was really taken aback and he went further. And he said, I think, Hans, you need to repent of being Danish Australian and be more of a Christian. And he walked away. Because he, he was... Peter, and I'm really thankful for it. I wasn't thankful at the time, right? But I'm really thankful that, that he said, he was saying, Hans, you have got, you've got kind of traditions, right? Handed down through being Danish and through be, being you know, half Aussie. And guess what? You are saying, the word of God says this, but actually I don't do that because here's, here's me. Here's my ethnic background. Here's my traditions. Here's whatever you want to say. And he was saying, very rightly, he was very right, that I was using my background to get under or get away from the Word of God. I wonder if we do that today. I actually think we do. Just take the, the idea of love. If you're, if you're not a follower of Jesus here, you've got a concept of love which says, actually, we've got to love people in such a way that they get to choose how, basically however they live, right? And it will be absolutely unloving for us to actually say anything uh, you know, that would oppose that. And yet, our, that version of love is a very, very kind of modern concept of love. It's a very kind of 50-year-old version of love, which doesn't actually work in the end. And what if, what if there is a God who has defined the world and defined what right and wrong is and defined if you do the wrong things, it's actually going to hurt you? Well, to actually not point out a person's sin is actually unloving then. But also, think about love in the church. We want to love people in the church, and that's great. But I actually think a lot of the time we just want to be nice to people. I actually think there are some times where we can see an issue over here with this person, but we don't want to say it because we don't want that person to be upset. And we're actually not helping that person or helping the church or helping whatever actually live because we have chosen to be nice to them. We, but we call it love. It's actually hard to call people out. But the Bible doesn't say hint at stuff when someone's wrong. The Bible doesn't say, actually, you, you know, kind of work a situation out so they'll figure it out. No, the Bible says, speak the truth in love. And can I just say that's very, really hard? It's really hard when you're on the receiving end. I remember, uh, you know, I was here in my second year and um, there's something with my kids. 
I think my kids, before we come to church, actually have this meeting. I've never seen them do it, but I think they have this meeting where they go, okay, who's going to blow up at church today and cause issues for mum and dad? I just think they have, because it seems like there's a different one each week. I think, you know, Elijah goes, okay, well, I did it last week, so Emma, it's your turn, or whatever, right? Well, one time, one of my kids was out there. This is, I wanted to go home. I wanted to rest because I had the 5 p.m. service. And so I said to one of my kids, I said, hey, we're going home now. And they just lost it. They were playing with their friends and they wanted to stay. And I lost it at them. And then as I was walking, I, I grabbed, grabbed my kid's hand. They were crying. And I was walking. One of, one of the guys who's actually in this room stopped me and said, can I just talk to your hands for a second? And he said, the way you are treating your child there is sinful. And I said, I'm the pastor. How... No, no, I didn't say that at all, right? I wanted to. I said, oh, okay, I'll take it on board, right? And two hours later, I was like, he's absolutely right. He's absolutely right. And he loved me enough to point that out. See, see, I think a lot of the time what we do is we want to be nice to people. We don't want to cause issues in their lives. And that's a good thing on one level. But if that stops us from going, hey, I see an issue here that we've got to deal with because of whatever is in our background, right? Family history, ethnic background. If we do that, we're doing what Jesus says not to do. And that is use our traditions that we've made up to nullify the word of God when the word of God says speak the truth in love. And everyone, everyone has got those traditions. Everyone. It's very easy to see the traditions of someone who's not part of your culture. It's very hard to see your own traditions. And so we've got to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal those things. We've got to ask each other to reveal those things. See, the faith that Jesus rejects is actually a faith that actually is built on more of human tradition than the Word of God. And I wonder if your Christianity is the same. I wonder how much of your background is actually in your Christianity and has actually pushed out the Word of God. But there's actually a second point here, the life that Jesus rejects. Have a look at verse 13 with me. Sorry, verse 14. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, every, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had, sorry, after he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing enters a person from outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their hearts, but into their stomachs and then out, out of their body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. See, the Jews had this idea there was only certain foods that you could eat, and if you ate one of those, you, you were unclean. Jesus is saying, actually, that's wrong. Because it just goes out, out, out the body anyway and, and doesn't really affect you morally. Then he goes on, and this is the kicker, verse 20. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come from. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, 
slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Notice, notice about this list how many of these things are in our world and are almost celebrated, right? The obvious one is sexual immorality, but there's a sense in which greed is celebrated. You want more. You need more. Come to this weekend course where you can find out how you can, just with a couple of thousand dollars in a few years, become a millionaire or billionaire through real estate, just trading on greed or malice. We, we are so good at sharing things about other people with malicious intent, but we, but we say it nicely. Envy, I want that, I need that. Slander, arrogance, folly, all these things are in our world today. They are very, very common. And can I just say... A lot of these are on a heart level and they are very subtle. They are very subtle. In fact, some of, a lot of them, we don't see them. When I looked at this list, I thought, you know, I, I should talk about two of them and I had my two planned out that I was going, going to, to preach about and then I asked the staff team and I asked a number of people at church, I said, out of this list, what are the two things that you think are the things that we need to speak about? And my two didn't even rate a mention, hardly rated a mention, right? And so I'm going to tell you the two things that by almost democratic vote came up. The first one, I asked 10 people, eight of them said, actually, you need to talk about greed. And some of us here are going, well, hands great, I'm glad you talked about greed because I know a lot of people uh, that struggle with it, but, but hands, I don't, Right? I think we say that because we, we've heard people who, who love being greedy. I mean, I'm not sure if you've seen the movie Wall Street where Michael Douglas as Gordon Gecko gives this amazing speech where he says, greed is good. He, he goes on in that speech to say, uh, greed is a clean drive that captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms, greed for life, for money, for love, for knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind. And you go, well, no, that's, I don't think greed is good. And so that's wrong. He's greedy, but, but actually, Hans, maybe I'm, I'm not. I don't think I am. Can I just say, we live in a world that trades on greed. You, you need more whatever it is, money, shoes, Toys, cars, holidays, whatever, it's, it's greedy. I was, I was listening to a sermon many years ago from my pastor. His name was Marcus Richardson. And he said, how do you know if you're greedy? He said, imagine God took all your income away from you except that which you needed for basic food, your house, and a very basic car. No holidays, no toys, no extra stuff. Just basic food, clothes, and a basic car. How do you feel? And when he said that, I thought, oh, well, that's really stupid. And then I thought, actually, no, I think it's stupid because that shows you how wedded to material possessions I am. 
if God actually changed your life, so he just gave you enough money just for basic clothes, basic food, house over your head, maybe a very basic car, could you be content? I dare say so many of our hearts are going, yeah, but what about X? What about, what about, and my heart is doing the same thing. That shows you that your, your heart and mind is infected with greed. Greed is everywhere. Greed is in our hearts. And yet, how do you deal with greed? Well, you come before Jesus and you see what he's done for you. Because in the gospel, in the gospel, God comes and saves you. You and I were spiritually bankrupt. In fact, we, were, we had this spiritual debt towards God that we could never pay ourselves. And Jesus, even though he was so spiritually rich, he died for you and me. And he not only cancels your debt, but he makes you a spiritual billionaire. And if you know Jesus, you are more wealthy in what matters than you can ever imagine. And if you're wealthy in what matters, well, what are you going to do with your money? You're actually going to let your heart, your money follow your heart. Your heart follows Jesus. And then you're going to be generous with it. That's how you deal with greed. By not only reminding yourself of the gospel, but living in light of the gospel over and over and over again. I'm not saying this is easy at all, but that's what we've got to do. That's greed. The second thing that came up is arrogance. And arrogance is one of these funny things because we can see it in other people, but actually, Hans, I'm not arrogant. I'm just really principled. But everyone else can see, actually, Hans, you're actually arrogant. You're You're not principled. See, the problem with arrogance is that it comes in many forms. But in the end, it's just self-glorification. It is thinking of myself far too much and having a greatly inflated view of myself. It's thinking of myself far too much and having a greatly inflated view of myself. And as I said, the problem is arrogance. with arrogance is we can see it in everyone else. We can't see it in ourselves. Once again, I remember when I was, a, when I was at Bible college, I had a good friend, Matt Freeman. Uh, he's still a good friend today. And uh, he... Um, I was at Bible college. He'd only been a Christian for maybe nine months. And he said, Hans, can I point something out? I said, I said, sure. He goes, you had a conversation with another student minister at church. And both of you just came across like you had so much pride and arrogance in your knowledge of theology and the Bible. And I went, <laughs> whatever. Actually, and then I started teaching him a biblical theology of pride and arrogance. And then patiently he listened and he said, you can't see the irony hands. I came to you and said, you've got a problem with pride and arrogance in your knowledge of the Bible and what do you do? You give me a Bible study on it. And I, he'll understand the Bible as much as me and then that's what I thought. And I walked away. Two days later I was like, oh man, he's absolutely right. He's absolutely right. I could not see the arrogance and pride that was in my life. So, 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 it, so the thing is, we should not assume that we're humble. 
we actually should assume that we're full of pride and arrogance because we probably are. Because we all have inflated views of ourselves and we all think of ourselves far too much. We all think we matter far more than we really do. And so, how do we get humble if arrogance on one hand, on one hand is there? How do we get humble? Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in the light of God's holiness, sinfulness, our sinfulness and the gospel. Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in the light of God's holiness, our sinfulness and the gospel. And so when we come before the cross, we actually see what, what we're really like. Here's what John Stott says. He says this, Every time we look at the, cro- uh, at the cross, Christ seems to say to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I am bearing, your curse I am suffering, your debt I am paying, your death I am dying. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness. Until we have visited a place called Calvary, it is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. When was the last time you came before the cross? saw what he's done for you and saw your sin and shrunk to your true size. I think one of the reasons why we don't meditate on, on the gospel a lot is because we know it, shrink, it, it, we know it humiliates ourselves, it humbles ourselves, and we don't want that. But that's the first step. That's the thing for the mind to keep reminding yourself of the gospel. But here's a practical thing. Apologize. Apologize. Say sorry. When we apologize, we're actually saying, I really messed up. And I was wrong. And and I hurt you. And I'm sorry that was wrong and how can I make it up? The reason why I think we don't apologize a lot is because of pride and arrogance. I don't want to actually bring myself down to a level where I say, actually, I really messed up. But, but you guys all know how the inability to apologize actually hurts. I know this because so many of you said, have uh, said it around Christmas time. I said, are you looking forward to your Christmas lunches? And they go, no, no, actually, because there's all this tension. I said, tell me about the tension. I said, well, well, there's two people in our family or one person in our family and and they blew up over something really silly, really small. And and it was 20 years ago. And guess what? There's all this tension. And it would change if one of them just said, hey, you know what, 20 years ago, I was a real jerk. And I'm sorry. And, and, and your family would be mended. But no, pride and arrogance is ruling, so we don't apologize. In the Danish culture, one of the things that, that happens is you don't apologize if you're a man. That's a woman's thing to do because we're big, strong Vikings. And so I, I learned not to apologize, and yet it's one of the surest paths to humility. I wonder if there's three people that you have to this afternoon apologize to. See, the life that Jesus rejects is one that is filled with pride, with greed, with arrogance, all these things. And are we going to deal with them because of our faith in Jesus? The last thing, and this is a small point quickly, the faith that Jesus accepts. I won't read it, but Jesus here is speaking to a woman who's a foreigner. 
in a Jewish, in a Jewish uh, setting, she had no right to come before God. And in fact, you know, Jesus actually rebukes her quite harshly. Have a look at verse 27. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. He's saying, well, well, there's children of God, they're the Jewish people, but you, you Gentiles, you are like dogs. You don't throw the children's food to the dogs. Very, very harsh. And yet, notice her reply, verse 28. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Can you see what she's doing? On one, one, one hand, she's got humility. She's going, okay, Jesus, you've got a right assessment of me. I am not part of the people of God. But on the other hand, she's got confidence, not in herself, but confidence in the fact that Jesus will be compassionate, that Jesus will come through. See, what Jesus wants, the, 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 the faith and the life that Jesus accepts, is one that has the humility to admit how broken and sinful we are. But the confidence in Jesus that we would come before him and ask for the forgiveness that we need. Do you have that humility to actually look at yourself and go, oh, man, I'm full of pride and arrogance and greed and sin. And yet do you have the confidence to come before Jesus and say, Jesus, you have forgiven me and I trust in you and you alone. That's the faith. That's the life that Jesus accepts. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that, that, that Jesus doesn't pull punches, even though we would like him to. Lord, Lord there's been so many things in this passage that has really affected me as I prepared this week. And I dare say it's affected so many of us. Lord, help us not to push it to one side, what we've heard today. Help us not, even though there's been bits that, that have maybe hurt, help us to see them as wounds from the ultimate friend, that is, wounds from the Lord Jesus himself, as he has spoken these words to us. Lord, I pray that your spirit would so help us change. Give us the humility to see ourselves in, in the right light, but the confidence to come before Jesus, knowing that he loves to forgive and forgive and forgive. Help us not to be like the Pharisees who, who have all, these, all this stuff on the outside that makes us look really religious, but really our hearts are dead to you. Help our hearts to be so on fire for you and let the externals take care of themselves. Help us to have hearts that truly love Jesus because of what he has done for us. We pray this in his name. Amen. We're going to sing our final two songs. So let's stand and sing.